0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are in Parshat Bihar this morning, so we are at Leviticus 25, 1. The book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verse 1. If we're in the triennial cycle, people, how come we're starting at the beginning of Parshat Bihar? You were going to ask me that. See, these are my people who have been learning because I'm a rabbi. I start where I want. That's one explanation. That is a viable explanation. The rabbi starts where she wants. Why else might it be that if we're in the third year of the triennial division, we're starting at the beginning of the Parsha?
2: It's a short Parsha.
1: It's a short parsha. That is part of the answer as well, uh, Pam. The reason is because uh, we are in a leap year. We have a second Adar. Generally, Parshat Behar is read with Parshat Bechukotai. So it's usually referenced, to, and my bar mitzvah kids can never pronounce it Behar Bechukotai. Is their Torah portion because it is stuck together. We added a month of Adar, a second Adar in leap year, yes? To rectify the calendars. The Passover doesn't wind up in the summer. <laughs> so that means we pull, we have four extra Shabbatot. So we pull those two Parshiot apart and read one each. Shabbat this week and next week. Behar this week, Bechukotai next week. So that is how in the third triennial we are at the beginning of the portion. Just in case it was going to keep you up tonight. <laughs> right? Right? Okay. okay. Alright, so we are 25-1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount
3: Sinai. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat whatever the land during its Sabbath will produce. You, your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you, and your cattle and the beasts in your land may eat all its yield. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years. Then you shall sound the horn loud. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, the Day of Atonement, You shall have the horn sounded throughout your land and you shall hallow the fiftieth year. You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his holding and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest the untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may only eat the growth direct from the field.
1: All right, so we are getting the laws in Leviticus of Shemitah and of Yovel, right? So two different ways that Torah is suggesting that permanent wage gap, permanent wealth gap is unacceptable any kind of permanent gap between rich and poor, according to Torah, is unjust. Period. End of sentence. Nobody gets to acquire so much that forever and ever, world without end, amen, those people get to gain more, while other people fall further and further into poverty. That is not just. And the community, the society that... Torah says they are to build in the land of Israel when they get there is one of justice and an attempt at equity. Now, stuff happens, right? You have an agricultural society, you have two, three years of drought, and what happens? Nothing grows. Nothing grows, and if nothing grows, I have nothing to sell. If I have nothing to sell, Tell me what happens. So two or three years in a row, I have nothing to sell. What happens? You have nothing to eat. What? You have to go to Egypt. You have to go to Egypt. if the famine goes on long enough, I have to go to Egypt. But let's just say I'm in a part of the country that's not getting enough rainfall. Two or three years in a row, my crops—forget even just failing—they don't—they don't leave me surplus enough to sell. So eventually, I have to sell the land because. For the first few years, I can buy seed, right, with whatever savings I have. Eventually, if I don't get enough produce to make a profit, I can't buy seed for next year. And if I can't buy seed and I can't plant, what am I supposed to do in an an agrarian society? I I have to essentially sell my land I can stay on the property, we're not clear, but we think this may be about staying on the property and working the land that you no longer own. Once that happens, how am I supposed to ever, as a worker, as a laborer, make enough money and put away enough money to buy my land back? Is that ever going to happen? No. What I get paid in wages to work the land will never allow me to buy my land back. Therefore, I am in perpetual indentured servitude. I'm in perpetual poverty. And according to Torah, that is unacceptable. So what do you do? Ask for federal aid. <laughs> Ask for federal aid. No.
2: <laughs>
1: Jewish free loan is how we solved some of that or right. tried to solve some of that problem in this country, right? Exactly. To say, okay, I've done well, but I know because of no fault of their own, other Jews haven't. And so we will offer uh, loans at no interest. That is, right, the... What's the acronym again? For the Hebrew free loans? That's I, anyway. Anyway. Um, Hebrew immigrant aid society, right? Did, did all of these kinds of highest did all these kinds of right things for Jews immigrating to this country. Okay. So that is a very Jewish value. That there are some people who are poor, and we're not gonna ask questions about how and why they got to be poor. What we're gonna do is do our best to help them. That is it, that is this old. That Jewish value is this old. The vision of that being the case is this old. Now, we, we're going to ask some different questions about whether or not it actually ever happened. <laughs> it's a different set of questions. But the vision is that perpetual poverty because of a gap around land ownership is unacceptable. All right, so a couple of things. So before we get to that, when you come to the land, you're going to, every week, observe a Shabbat. Every seven, every seventh year, the land will observe a Shabbat, yeah? So the land lies fallow, and you don't own what the land then produces on its own. So I have fields and crops. In the sixth year, that's the last year I'm har- planting and harvesting, the seventh year, whatever grows naturally on its own, everyone is allowed to eat. Everyone. So it, I can't enforce right, the fences around my orchard in the seventh year because anyone is allowed to come eat those apples. Is that revolutionary at that time? I do not know. I do not know.
4: Well, even that's not enough to subsist for very long, what you can pick in one season, Correct. You only subsist on it for that for that season.
1: Right. You got to plant the next year. So, we had a discussion last week about the calendar. Yes? Yeah. When does the according to last week, according to Parshat Emor, when does the year begin?
2: September spring. Spring. The year
1: begins in the spring. And the first harvest is the wheat harvest in the springtime. Some rabbis want to argue we have evidence that actually already we have the year actually beginning in the fall. Because if it began in the spring, then you're essentially living without produce for two years. <coughs> that that it was a later planting and harvest that was the last one allowed in year six. And then, you know, because otherwise if, if it's the one Starting in the springtime, right, then it, they calculate that it would be almost two years before you actually, you that you were going plant. without, right.
0: Doesn't this mean that unless they have a bumper crop in year five, and year six, they're in um, uh, you know, year seven, and potentially year eight?
1: So the big concern is, well, wait a minute. If I'm not planting and I'm not harvesting, like... I'm supposed to go without my salary mm-hmm. for a whole year. That, that's going to break my family. So God assures the people that you will have enough. Enough. You, know, you will have great crops in year five and six. Not to worry. Mm-hmm. So no worries, <laughs> right? Right, Bob. Five six no worries. Years, hmm? Five and six birth years. Yeah. Right. Or dog ears. All right. <laughs> so the land gets a complete rest. This is Shemitah. So wh- what is the point of giving the land a Shabbat? Why, why is that part of building an ethical and just society? Mm-hmm. That this is not about, so the poor get to access it. So that's a good thing. But why, why, why letting the land have Shabbat? Why is, how does that contribute to the character of the society?
2: At least you think it's
1: your land. Ha.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Lest you think once I get there and they parcel out the land, it belongs to me. Every seventh year, you don't get to touch it, because who does it belong to? God. God. I might say to itself. It doesn't belong to you, it belongs to itself. You get to use it. Just like you get to manipulate the world for six days, one day, you accept things as they are. So it is with the land, you get to manipulate it and do what you want with it for six years, and then one year, you let it be. It's not yours.
3: Isn't there a parallel to the human body, to the idea of the human body, that our bodies don't belong to us either?
1: And time doesn't belong to us. Right? Nothing belongs to us. (laughs) Nothing. Which is the whole spiritual practice of reorientation that happens every seventh day. Oh, right. This time doesn't belong to me to decide what I get to do with it. That I'm going to take six more accounts. You don't get to, you, it doesn't belong to you. Yeah?
4: It's also part of the sabbatical process in universities. You get a seventh year to recuperate and rebuild.
1: Right. But in that case, I don't know that it doesn't belong to you. I think in that case, actually, it's the other way. I've earned, I've earned this year of of sabbatical. It's mine, and I'm going to go learn how to train dolphins, or which one of my rabbinical school class. Colleagues did on his sabbatical. And I was very jealous because I chose to serve a reform synagogue in Haifa. And he was training dolphins. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? I'm doing rabbi work and he's training dolphins. When am I ever going to get to train dolphins for six months? Oh, thank you, Sarah. And that would probably be a much easier job if those people weren't Jewish.
4: You
1: okay, Right? Oh, God, help me. All right. Number? Right? Verse 8. U'safartah lecha sheva shabbatot shanim, sheva shanim, Sheba pa'amim. You shall count off seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. So that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years, right? Seven sets of seven years is 49 years. Then what's going to happen? Verse (laughs) 9. We read about this last week, didn't we? We have at the beginning of the... of the... (laughs) Chodesh HaShvi'i, in the seventh month. On the first day of that month, what happens? Yom Shua. Yom Shua. We sound a horn. Right? We sound a horn on the first day of the seventh month. In the 50th year... In that month, you're going to have Yom Tru'ah, the first day of that month. Now we call it, of course, Rosh Hashanah. Mm -hmm. But here it's the seventh month, because the year begins in the spring. 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 So the seventh month, the first day of the month, you're going to have Tru'ah. You're going to have a blast of the horn. And then on Yom HaKippurim, what's going to happen? We're going to get You're going to sound the shofar Tru'ah You're going to sound tru'ah again
3: So that means you're allowed To sound the shofar Yom Kippur That year Betha, which the ra- Of course Which normally we're not allowed to
1: do Bert For other reasons You (laughs) silly, silly man So We (laughs) There was no prohibition Against carrying On Yom Kippur In biblical times Shh Don't don't tell that To the rabbi But There was no prohibitions On Yom Kippur Okay Uh, You're just not allowed To work Mm. How do the rabbis Define the work That we refrain from Do you know?
2: We don't do whatever it took to build the
1: mishkan. Beautiful. Because the laws of not working on Shabbat come immediately before the instructions Mm -hmm. to build the mishkan, the rabbi say, ah, Mm -hmm. there must be a connection, because it's divine revelation, Mm -hmm. hello. Mm -hmm. It's not an accident, God forbid. Therefore, Mm -hmm. when it says melacha, when it says work, and then you get all these tasks associated with building the mishkan, it must mean those tasks are the definition of melacha. So anything done in building the Mishkan, see how we learn so much more, Mark, than just the text in front of us at this class? <laughs> anything, anything done in relationship to building the Mishkan, building the tabernacle, would have been considered melacha. That's how the rabbis define melacha. Carrying portage would have been part of that. Therefore, portage must be considered melacha, and therefore it is forbidden on Shabbat and holidays.
3: Unless you're within an Arab. Yeah.
1: Unless you're within a courtyard. Where Correct. Come, where does that <laughs> come <laughs> from? What? The Arab got bigger and bigger. <laughs> that, that the law says you can carry within your courtyard because it's not portage. So you right? You're not area. carrying it somewhere else as work. Somewhere. It's in your own backyard. You're doing your life. If I'm going to serve Shabbat lunch, I have to carry the pot the women have to carry yeah. the pot from the kitchen. kitchen to where I'm serving. So you can't outlaw all carrying. So how do they define carrying as malachah? When is carrying malachah? Mm-hmm. When it's outside of your...
3: your um, but, didn't, but didn't the courtyard... Now it's courtyard. become greatly expensive. Yeah. Now, now it's expanded. whole cities it's, have it's, right, it's, this it's,
1: nice little wire around it on posts mm-hmm. so that people can carry within that neighborhood or within that town. Cuz only Jews come up with laws and then ways around the laws. Only Jews do that as of sports. a sport. <laughs> as a sport. All right, a sacred sport. All right, wait, we got off track. Where was I? Huh? Thank you,
4: Richard. <laughs> Verse, eight.
1: Verse 8. Okay, so we're counting off seven sets of seven years that gives us 49 in the 50th year we have Yovel yeah and what is Yovel in English? Jubilee Jubilee and what will be declared in the Jubilee? Freedom Freedom how's Torah talk about that? Do. If, believe it or not, this is a Hebrew name in Israel. Dror. Dor- seriously. seriously. D-R-O-R. Dror. It's a horrible name. It's a horrible name. So what is going to be proclaimed is Dror. Release. Release throughout your land. So Yom Kippur, another... Shofar Blast to proclaim that it is Yovel. It is the Jubilee. And Dror is proclaimed throughout the land. Okay.
3: Do you know where we are relative to the Jubilee year right now?
1: I do not. But it's not this year. I have no oh. idea. I, w- I think I would have heard something if it was this year. So far, at least.
0: Is not celebrated at all? I mean, is today?
1: I don't know. I mean, the community? The they know when it's Shemitah. They know when it's the seventh year, but it became financially impossible yeah. to enact in the land of Israel this idea of but ceasing no all or no commemoration. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, all right. You shall reclaim you proclaim. You shall proclaim release throughout the land for all its inhabitants, and shall be a jubilee mm-hmm. for you. I'm at verse ten. Each of you shall return to your holding and each of you return to your family. All right. So we're going to get Shemitah here also, right? No no uh, harvesting. You leave the land alone. So it's a big Shabbat for the land. But what else happens? What is So what is the release? What is the dror about, Pam?
2: You release your workers and you
1: go return to your
2: land
0: well,
1: do you own the land so the release is for bound laborers and the land that's, the, that's who and what gets released so people who are indebted slaves, indebted servitude people, they get to go back to their families they are released
4: for good or just for the year?
1: For good. <clears throat> Permanently. It, their status changes at Yovel. Mm-hmm. At the Yovel, they are no longer slaves. slaves or, you know, indebted servants. Same with the land. The land experiences drog and goes back to its original owners. Oh, what do you mean Oh, Carol asks, what do we mean? <laughs> <laughs> original owners. Who's the original owner? God. So what is the original owner here at? Well, who are we talking about? Who am I going to give it back to? Who do I? Nature. Bless you. Thank you. Where's Bless you. Bring on the snooze. Um, so who, who am I going to sign the papers over to? The property, the title to the property. I can't send it over to God, obviously. <laughs> it's be a member
0: of the tribe that... The descendants of the members of the tribe that were assigned... Oh,
1: that land. right. There was a parceling out of the land when they got there.
2: <clears throat>
1: a lot later. Right? So... Remember, this is not linear history, right, right? This is written (coughs) long after there's an understanding of tribal land. This is written long after they've been living on the land as tribes, yes? Okay. So the land goes back to its original owner. Who's the original owner? Descendants of the people who were given the land at the conquest, by God, which conquest? Mm-hmm. Um, Whichever. Yeah. the one that never really never happened. Ever. All right, so, right, so the at the conquest, the land is apportioned, and those descendants receive the entitlement to that land
4: for eternity. That was considered fair. So does that mean it's just been 50 years since the land was taken and now has to go back? Because this only happens every 50 years.
1: Every 50 years, you return the land to its original owner. Right. This this doesn't assume anything about what
4: year it is right now. They're in the desert. Yes, but if it's 50 years and they return it forever.
1: No, they return it would well, they return it. But then if someone should lose it over the next 50 years, at that 50 year, it goes over, back.
4: You start over again. You
1: start over again. This is how you keep the playing field equal. Yeah. That I may do well, and it may be most of my lifetime. I mean, I'm 54, right? Mm-hmm. So it may be most of my lifetime that my family enjoys access to this land. But after those 50 years, it resets.
3: Yes, Bert. Uh, the, I, I checked, and according to Chabad, this is no longer applicable and will only become applicable when Mashiach comes. At, at a future time when we are all restored to the land, including the lost tribes. Yeah. Where are we? There you <laughs> go. If we can find them. The lost, So we don't need to worry about it. We don't need to worry about it. <laughs> and that's why you didn't
1: know. <laughs> so if they released all the laborers, where are they getting new laborers? Why do they need new laborers?
4: They don't have anything.
1: They don't have any land? Yeah.
4: Mm -hmm. Oh. This creates a real problem. If the (laughs)
1: land... (laughs) If the land reverts back to its original owners, the original owners work the land and hire laborers.
2: Because they don't have jobs either.
1: Hmm? Because
2: the laborers wouldn't have
1: jobs either. Right? Everybody goes back to their ancestral holdings and then you can hire people to work your land. Carol, why does this cause a problem? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, you're out You're out of a job. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. And you're out of uh, housing, and you're out of everything. And you have a family. And what do you do?
1: What do you do? <laughs>
4: Did you do just steal money, money from
1: someone else, no. Linda Scheibel? <laughs> I didn't think so. Oh, my Did goodness. Did this ever happen? We all... So to what Carol's this... point... Most likely, this never happened. Oh, okay. Most likely, this was <laughs> the sense. vision. Vision. This is the ideal, written by people who never enacted it. Yeah,
0: I suppose if you like, try to play it out, how might it actually work in a, in a real society? Let's say that I'm that I'm descended from the tribe of Ruben Ruben Gatsmore, right? the tribe of Ruben Right. So. And then I decide that I I don't want to. That's not where I'm meant to be. I want to be a merchant in Jerusalem. So you know, so I create a a little shop in Jerusalem and I do my stuff. And then the Jubilee year comes along, and now I have to go back to the to the land. My shop is gone. I don't want to be a farmer now. I do. So I guess as a practical Mm -hmm. matter, this
1: doesn't work. Take all the numbers of sacrifices we see happening at the Mishkan.
2: That
1: doesn't work either. <laughs> that doesn't work either. An imaginary system that might have been lovely, but if you add up all the bulls that required to make all those sacrifices at the tabernacle, there's no way they, that any population could have supported that many bulls in the, <laughs> the middle I think there is a logical disconnect because in <laughs> the year of
0: the ODA, Um, you are creating a new underclass because all of a sudden they go off and and this isn't a situation where uh, this Parshas is trying to say everything is equal but you put people, it's kind of like Zimbabwe where people came off the land and you know just weren't troubled so uh, I, I don't see um Any situation where this is this is even fair,
1: right? So, in in its ideal, it's fair because those underclass people are descendants of some tribe and some clan in that tribe. Therefore, they would revert to their original allotment of land, like in, in the ideal. But you know, in the practical, right? What does it actually do? It, it creates complete instability, chaos. right, and chaos.
0: Yeah, but the thought, I, <clears throat> I think I get the thought, which was that at that time, the real, I maybe mean, there were only two stocks of value I can think of. One would have been farm animals and the other was the land. So the concept <clears throat> is that if the only, if that was at that time, now we have other stocks of value, but... That was sort of the situation then. That was where all the wealth was. So it's saying every fifty years we need to level the amount of wealth per person.
1: Yes. So I, I would That's add one category of stock, and that is human labor. Oh yes. Labor, yes right. Labor. So land, pastoral animals, and human labor. Wasn't all- Yeah. So yes, it was a way to completely revert back to the original (laughs) at the time of the you know, gaining of the land. Forget about who we kicked off the land to make it Reuven's or right or Shimon's, right? Forget about who we kicked off to take it, but we took it because it was given to us by God. And so when we took it, um, then it's an attempt to say whatever's happened between then and 50 years, we're going to take care of it. We're going to level the playing field so that the gap just never gets so big that it is insurmountable.
4: Well, has that ever happened either, George? Well, the current analogy is a 90 percent inheritance tax.
0: It doesn't go to the poor, but it goes to the government, which ultimately, be,
1: it's
0: taken to the rich. I mean.
1: Exactly. This is exactly the same idea, that the wealthy, rather than pass all of that wealth down to the next generation, who will have even more wealth, because they'll have even more interest, and even more stocks, and even more, right? So the idea, yes, is that you tax the transfer of that money from one generation to the next. That money goes to the government who is the one to take care of the people who are left at the bottom side of that completely unequal ratio, right, ratio of, of wealth. So this is, who who, who is, who's writing this? Who, what source is this? What, what are our sources for all the Torah material? What are our sources? Somebody tell me?
3: Priestley,.
2: De- YJ.
1: J- J- J. Who else? Come on. Huh? The Elohist. One more. D. De- okay. So our source material for the Torah: the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Priestly Source, and the Deuteronomist. Guess how many of them address you? Don't get to answer. Guess how many of them address this business. Uh, none. <laughs> ah, Actually. Three of them. I'm not sure if it's J or E. But yes.
4: Mm-hmm. And how do they address it differently? Oh, funny you should ask. <laughs> Plant.
1: Plant. Plant. Exodus twenty-three. Keep your finger at Leviticus twenty-five. Flip back to Exodus twenty-three. Twenty-three.
3: 23 what?
1: Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Twenty-three. One. Twenty-three. One. No. Wait, 23, where am I?
3: It's actually verse 10, I believe.
1: All right, Bert is saying it's at verse 10.
3: Are you looking for six? Yes,
1: page 440. Mm-hmm. Or 472 in the red book. 472 in the red book. 440 in the green. Verse 10.
3: Read Bert. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Let the needy among your people eat of it, and what they leave let the wild beasts eat. You shall do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Go on. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your bondman and the stranger may be refreshed.
1: Okay. So we get Shemitah, yes. And we get get Shabbat for the land, no tilling and harvesting. And we get, what do you call it, Um, a seventh day of rest, a Shabbat for us, and for the animals, and for the laborers. right? And the Ger Toshav, someone who's living among you, even if they are not Israelite, they get Shabbat. All right, what is our D source, Bert? Keep your finger at Leviticus 25. <laughs> and what is our D source?
3: It's right up there, 15.1.
1: You want me to turn around? 15, okay. one. Oh, Deuteronomy fifteen-one. Uh, See, if you were a biblical scholar, you'd be doing this all the time, people. And if you had a scroll, it would take you a long time. Right. 11.29. <laughs> uh,
0: 15. 15 one 1129 in the green I I
3: and uh, it's like, like 15 one. Ten seventy 1076 in the red 1129 in the green all right go for it Bert. Every seventh year you shall practice remission of debts. This shall be the nature of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the due that he claims from his fellow. He shall not dun his fellow or kinsman, for the remission proclaimed is of the Lord. You may dun the foreigner, but you must remit whatever is due to you from your kinsmen. Go on. There shall be no needy among you, since the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as hereditary portion, (laughs) if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all his instructions that I enjoin upon you this day. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you. You will extend loans to many nations, but require none yourself. You will dominate many nations, but they will not dominate you. Drop to verse 8. If right. I like yes. yes.
1: You must. Rather. I see nine. No. I don't see.
3: Ah. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Beware lest you harbor the base thought the seventh year, the year of remission is approaching, so that you are mean to your needy kinsman and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt. Give to him readily and have no regrets when you do so, for in return the Lord your God will bless you in all your efforts and in all your undertakings.
1: See, Bob? It's going to be okay.
3: For <laughs> uh, there will, will never cease to be needy ones in your land. Which is why
1: I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. All right, we're not going to go there now, but that's that's interesting that verse 4 says, there shall be no needy among you, because mm-hmm. God's going to take care of you. And what did we just read? There will always be. There will always be needy among you. Oh. But
0: that's because at that verse, uh, the condition is that uh, you have to heed all God's instructions for there to be
1: no needy. No needy. So what are you suggesting, Richard, that the authors were saying there'll be no needy as long as you follow God's commandments, but of course we're not following God's commandments, therefore there's always going to be needy among us? That's pretty depressing. (laughs)
3: Well, that's why the Hebrews Or that they were needy and it's needy because we did wrong.
1: I'm just saying To write There will never be needy among you blah, blah 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 And then there will always be needy among I mean why start with the first one mm-hmm. I mean why the, Let the prophet say that Why am I writing <laughs> that If I know we're not following it And there's always going to be needy Why am I going to write the first part
0: What was going on well, it, I mean,
1: they, but they, they they, they just say there's they always there going to so there. be needy among you, and deal with it. Rather than there's never going to be needy among you, except there is. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> well, so <laughs> but it does make sense. I mean, <laughs> to you, maybe.
0: <laughs> 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 well, they're they're just. <laughs> but that's you really yeah, know they don't yeah. say don't yeah. do, they, when they say don't do something. It's because of people.
1: But that I understand. Th- this makes no sense. Really? No. It's but it's now, but yeah. No.
0: But
1: it Why? Mean? You say there's going to be no needy among you, and then they're, they're, they will never cease from among you. Because it doesn't say here's what should happen. It says there won't be any, except there will be forever. It's directly, and it's not conditional, by the way. If you follow my commandments, there will never be needy among you. No. It does not say that. It's very contradictory. It may be implied. Okay. It does That's not say true. that.
0: It's a funny if,
1: however, there happens to be a needy person among you, oh, yeah, and guess what? It will never cease that there are going to be needy. Okay, well, I'm not going to stay here. I don't want to stay here. Let's go on. Tw- 12, Bert. I'm sorry. Uh, if a fellow Hebrew man... 12, 25, 12, 20, 12.
3: 12. 15, 12. I'm sorry. Ex- Deuteronomy. Oh, I'm sorry. If a fellow Hebrew man or woman is sold to you he shall serve you 6 years and in the 7th year you shall set him free when you set him free do not let him go empty handed furnish him out of the flock threshing floor and vat with which your god YHWH uh, has blessed you bear in mind that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and your god YHWH redeemed you Therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you today.
1: All right. So this is what we read when we were reading about Hagar and Sarah. Remember when I asked us to read that story a different way this year? Mm-hmm. Yes. Based on this, that she, that Hagar was actually being set free, which is why she's being given provisions, because you can't set a slave free without providing for them. All right. But I won't stay there either. So. Um, so what does this text say? What does the Deuteronomist say? If you are sold a slave, how long are you allowed to own that slave? Six, years. Six years. years. On the seventh year, the slave goes free. All right, we have three sources dealing with the idea of a release for the land. All three provide for a, a rest for the land. It's only in P and D that we see the idea of human beings Also experiencing this release, yeah? All right. So, if you were told to say the fifth year or sixth year before the Jubilee, is the Jubilee a set time or is it 50 years from the time you took this? It depends which one we're talking about. If we're talking about Jubilee, it's a set time. Yes. Jubilee is a set time. The sixth or seventh year is in D is talking about since you got the slave. So that meant if I buy property from you in Israel, ancient Israel, how long am I buying that property for? 49
4: years. No, no. At,
1: at most,
4: 49,
1: 49 Whatever's years. Left.
3: Whatever's left before the Jubilee.
1: What if there's only 10 years left before the Jubilee? Well, how is that fair? That I'm going to pay the same price for that land as somebody else who gets 49 years, but no, I'm only getting, years? only getting 10 years?
4: No, I'm pay the same ha, 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 the price. David is a
1: businessman. They didn't pay that's the why same early price. we not capitalists. You, right here. That's right. You paid based on how many years right. left until the Jubilee. It's pro-
4: yeah.
1: yeah.
4: What's that's interesting that. to me is is this whole story being put in in three different ways with some similarities when it probably never happened, has never happened and why is it there except is it only to say you have to treat humanity with more equity
1: yes and I think the, I think Shemitah they believe actually a form of Shemitah would have happened sort of like crop rotation you know like you let you let as a good practice you, you let still. the land lie fallow in order for the nutrients and everything right. to build back up so you don't strip the land right so um, so that was that would have been good practice but good israelite practice would have been to put a theological explanation on top of that it's good farming good practice uh, yeah. still you know
0: that so if you think about the land in California you can't buy it.
1: And if you think that this is written by a collection of tribes, Mm -hmm. a federation of tribes, it makes sense as not just a prescription by God, but as a treaty. Ruvain may get too big for Ruvain's britches and start taking land from Shimon, right? Because Shimon has a couple of crop failures or does something stupid with their money and now Ruvain has Shimon's property as well. It works to protect tribal control over tribal lands. We have to remember the ancient Israelites were a confederation of tribes. It was not a people before that. Right? We keep buying this as history. This is not history. This is mythic history. What really happened is a loose confederation of 12 tribes would come together when there was an emergency. And then they went back to their territorial homelands and didn't deal with each other except through negotiations. Right? It's under David that we see those 12 tribes become a nation state. Now you need a national identity. Hence, J and E. Get put together. Right, I've lost some people already, but it's okay. I'll just keep saying it. Because those of you who have been learning with me for nine years, get this on some level, yes? That was that was repetition for you. So just don't worry. Just come for another nine years, <laughs> Mark, and it'll all make sense. I promise. <laughs> well, take the simple <laughs> it, view. It's really uh, written in the third person, so there's some over, you know, somebody telling. But the, the People said, but it was written in the third
3: person,
0: and it's like we learned when we were in New Mexico, for
3: example. The, the, the uh, Pueblos, they have their own little places, but they come together as a federation. i trading in the same way.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So this is not, I, I will say it. I'm going to turn off my microphone, maybe. But I will say, no, I will say so that nobody else hears um, outside this room, uh, this is not one of the most exciting Torah portions (laughs) for me. So when that happens, and I need to come teach you all for an hour, um, I'm like, well, what could be one of the more radical reads on this, right? And so I go to books like Torah Queries, a queer reading of Torah. This is a collection of commentary on each of the Parshiot from a queer perspective. Right? So let's see what a queer perspective of the Jubilee might be. And you're thinking to yourself, I do not know where that's going to go. So um, this is Dr. Rabbi Jacob Staub, a beloved teacher of ours at uh, RRC. His specialty is uh, the medieval year. He teach, he's the core teacher for the medieval year. He knows medieval poetry, mm-hmm. backwards and forwards. He knows the history of you know, the conquest by Islam. He knows everything about the medieval period. like It's ridiculous. Um, and he's an amazing human being, an amazing human being. So um, let's look at what Rabbi Dr. Jacob Staub has to say about Parshat Behar. So let's look at the quote he brings. Usually, I told you, I think I told you, I hate quotes at the beginning of chapters. I hate them. I think they're whatever. So I don't know why people feel they need to do that. But he actually references this quote later. So let's look at it. When Moses broke the sacred tablets on Sinai, the rich the pieces carved with adultery and kill and theft and the poor got only don't, don't, don't I know it's no, no, no here but right, the, the, the essence is like low, no you shall not is the right don't is the meaning of no there, no adultery means don't commit adultery alright so that's what the poor got, alright I love that and it does go right with this whole idea alright The queer perspective questions all norms. Not only norms of gender role and definition or sexual orientation, but all norms. From a queer perspective, norms are human attempts to simplify, classify, and regulate the complexities of reality. Reality, however, is inevitably messier than the categories we impose. There are always exceptions that do not conform to our classifications. The establishment of norms of any kind, therefore, is a process that essentially and inevitably excludes and pushes difference to the periphery, forcing diversity to mold itself into preset categories and condemning that which does not fit in. It is inherently oppressive. All right. I think most of us can agree with at least most of what Jacob is saying here. Yeah, that... A queer perspective questions all categorization of human being and says we're just too complex to stick into a box. Neat category. So that it's always messier. And somebody in that classification system is always going to be pushed to a place where they don't belong because they're going to get defined as something that they don't necessarily want to be defined as. All right. Among the most pervasive of normative assumptions that a queer perspective challenges is that hierarchy is natural and inevitable. Economic hierarchy, social class distinctions, hierarchies of power. We are encouraged to assume that the state of inequity is built into reality. Some people are always wealthier than others. We can upend the current hierarchy, but when we do, the new order will itself be hierarchically ordered. (laughs) Parshat Bihar calls this assumption into question. It is a powerful text on which we can ground the queer perspective because it subverts the legitimacy of class distinctions. Mm -hmm. Leviticus 25, the first chapter of Bihar, contains the only regulations in the Torah about land tenure and the rights of landowners to sell or mortgage their land. The law of Shemitah, or the sabbatical year, requires that in the seventh year, the land is to have a Shabbat. No sowing, reaping, or pruning is permitted. The Torah, however, is not content to explain Shemitah once. It does so three times, as we just saw, Yeah. The version of this practice described in Exodus arises out of a concern for the poor who are given exclusive access to the growth of the land in the sabbatical year. We just read that in Exodus. The version in Deuteronomy, the D source, emphasizes the remission of debts and the freeing of indentured servants. By contrast, Leviticus 25 seems unconcerned with either of these rationales. Instead, it declares in the seventh year the land shall have a shabbat of complete rest, a sabbath to Baveh. The text is focused on the sanctity of the land itself and on God's ownership of the land. We are to let the land rest as a periodic reminder that it does not belong to us. Rather, it is ours temporarily as an achuzah, a long-term lease. Yeah. There is significant evidence that the Shemitah year was observed in ancient Israel. There is little evidence, however, for the observance of the ritual of land tenure, the yovel, the jubilee year, which is mentioned only here. All right, drop down to the practice of the Shemitah. The practice of the Shemitah and yovel years reflects an extraordinary concern of the Torah to attend to the needs of the poor and to prevent excessive class distinctions. These institutions represent an acknowledgement of economic inequity and regularly set attempt to ameliorate its consequences. Parshat Bihar is a central text in ongoing discussions about the political leanings of Jewish tradition. Right? There are political implications to overturning <laughs> an assumed economic hierarchy of class. There's that's always going to have serious political implications yes alright then there's some he's talking about disagreeing about you know uh, interpretations Um, drop down to Parshat Bihar Parsha <clears throat> Pihar allows us to transcend the debate that happens through right, the years about what actually was going on with the needy. The Jubilee text may describe an ideal that was never implemented but its utopian character is precisely what gives it such breathtaking power. It questions all social and economic distinctions in the agrarian society of ancient Israel. It questions all norms, even as basic an economic practice as owning a piece of land that you have bought. Think about that. We take it for granted. But that is a radical challenging of the norms that when you buy a piece of land, it belongs to you. Jacob is saying this, this called into question absolute basic norms that would have been a step. And we, we feel this way. If I buy it, it's mine. Well, once the bank doesn't own it anymore, right? <laughs> then it's mine. All right. Acknowledging the existence of economic oppression, of foreclosures and slavery, it assails the existence of these de facto realities on the most radical of bases. The land belongs to God, so it's not yours to sell, no matter how dire your economic straits. And since the Israelites are God's servants, they cannot sell themselves into permanent slavery. This text itself serves to queer the economic and social status quo in ancient Israel. let's go down to the sabbatical year the sabbatical year ameliorates injustice by reminding us that the earth belongs to God and must be cultivated accordingly the jubilee year eradicates injustice or would have if it had ever been instituted in a comprehensive way drop down next paragraph pursuing the objective of queering all norms meaning what what do we take from this what if we took it as a challenge to us Pursuing the objective of queering all norms, we can learn from the rationales with which Parshat Bihar seeks to subvert economic and social hierarchies. Inasmuch as we were all slaves in Egypt and were redeemed by God, we have no right to oppress others because they are different or to allow ourselves to be oppressed. The Torah suggests that only God the Redeemer has that right, not the very human poskim, the halachic authorities who we referenced earlier, um, who read and misread texts in order to establish norms that regulate, exclude, and oppress. Inasmuch as everything we have ultimately is a gift from its true owner, capital O, we are not permitted to utilize our God-given resources to degrade other human beings or to allow ourselves to be degraded. Even if people want to pull from these texts... And suggest that that's exactly what Torah is commanding us to do. Yes. So Jacob is saying, but Bahar is asking us to queer the text, to queer the the assumptions that underlie our society, and to say. If we take this seriously, you can't go to those texts because we belong to God. The land belongs to you. You can't use other texts to undercut this. You can't. This is saying, sorry, the fundamental idea here is that it doesn't belong to you. Even you don't belong to you.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So if you don't belong to you, Cecile certainly can't belong to you. (laughs) However much Cecile thinks she's your slave. She doesn't belong to you because you don't even belong to you. That's great. Think about that. Right? Wow. Okay. Alas, our text can only be stretched so far because it rests on another norm. The ancient division of the land of Israel into tribal holdings that it regards as permanent and divinely ordained. Alas, it presumes that all Israelites descend from those who settled the land after the conquest of Canaan when the land of each of the tribes was neatly divided among members of the tribe. At the Jubilee, the original position to which everyone is to return is the land that is presumed to have belonged to one's clan since the original conquest. The Jubilee offers nothing to those who do not fit into an accepted ancient category. Those without clear, unblemished Israelite lineage. Those without children to inherit their land. Those with same-sex partners. Those who do not wish to be farmers, Richard Roger. (laughs) Like all utopian visions, it rests on its own assumptions of what is ideal. So even if we queer something, we're starting with something that already has assumptions inherent in it, right? Sure. Because that's life. Here I turn to the fragment of Kaminsky's poem quoted in the epigraph. In Riley noting the difference in the way that the commandments are experienced by the rich and the poor, The poet implicitly suggests that before Moses smashed the tablets, the commandments would have been absorbed, uh, absorbed, observed uniformly by rich and poor, or perhaps that there would have been no such class distinctions. Of course, much like the never implemented jubilee, there never was a moment of intact tablets, intact commandments. Moses smashed them before he had them delivered to the people. There was never uniformity, of relationship to these commandments because they never got there. <laughs> they were already busted. And of course, if there had been such a hypothetical ideal moment, it would have been full to overflowing with norms Shabbat observance, respect of parents, not speaking God's name, not coveting, and so on. From a queer perspective, would we prefer the intact tablets, the broken ones, or neither of them? surprisingly the rabbinic answer to this question is both of them Rabbi Joseph taught that you smashed and you shall deposit them teaches us that both the tablets and the fragments of the tablets were deposited in the ark This Talmudic passage imagines that both sets of tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, carried around at the center of the Israelite camp in the wilderness for 40 years, and then placed in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The broken and the whole were at the center of the Israelite cult, the one testifying against the other in a tandem of ineffability. (laughs) The broken and the whole were at the center of the Israelite cult, the one testifying against the other in a tandem of ineffability. Like Like the hypothetical jubilee text that has stood through the ages as a perpetual critique of the imperfect, unjust state of our communities, so in the rabbinic imagination at our spatial center rested a graphic material acknowledgment that however we try to interpret and execute the divine will, we can never get it right. Because God's will is beyond transcription. How very queer. It's, uh, Shabbat shalom.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kahil at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.